Thanks for joining us on Beyond the Sermon, the podcast of First Methodist Church in Collingswood, New Jersey. Our goal is not only to share our sermons, but to go beyond the sermon in conversation about what we're learning and what God is doing in our lives and in our community. This sermon comes from our 2023 Lent sermon series, Seven Deadly Sins, The Power of God to Move Us from Death to New Life. You can find more information about our church at fumccollingswood.org. Thanks for listening. All right, so here we are. We've gone through uh, envy and gluttony and greed and sloth and wrath, which means since we're preaching on pride next week, we're talking about lust today. Talking about lust. Not going to lie, haven't particularly been looking forward to this one. But um, here we are. And if I haven't stepped on your toes yet in this series, well, there's still time. <laughs> but when we think about lust, we generally tend to think about it as sexual desire. Right there, there are other things, other ways we can talk about lust. We can talk about a lust for power, or a lust for a life, or a lust for fame. You know, you you can really lust after anything. Um, but generally, when we've talked about it, a partic- particularly in the church, uh, we've talked about it in relation to sexual desire. We've talked about it in relation to sex. And acting on those desires, uh, even feeling those desires, we've often tended to communicate a message that says even feeling those things is sinful, right? I don't know if you've been part of a youth group talk about sex anytime in the last few years, but uh, often the, the message that tends to come across is avoid anything to do with sex, if you feel something related to sex that's not good, um, you know, we can even get to the point where in the church we feel guilty just for noticing an attractive person, right? But I think this comes from uh, an ancient heresy that uh, was part of the church. Uh, early on, and I think still finds its way into the church, and that's called Gnosticism. Gnosticism. Gnosticism says that, uh, you know, it's still within the Christian framework, so it's still, you know, looking to Jesus and all that kind of stuff, but it says, we've got these bad physical bodies and good spiritual souls, and we'll be saved when Jesus you know, frees us from these physical bad bodies and we can be spiritually present with God. That's how a lot of us think, right? You know, we want to leave this old body behind so we can go to some kind of spiritual heaven. But all through the Bible, Scripture talks about humanity as enfleshed souls, right? Incarnate spirits. We talk about Jesus who, as God, was a spirit or spiritual being, and he was incarnate, right? He put on flesh and became human. 
And so we too, as humans, we are soul and body, spirit and flesh. And both our souls and our bodies matter. If you flip to the end of your Bible, you'll, you'll read at the end of Revelation that after Jesus has come and he's in the process of restoring all things, making all things new, there's even a new heaven and a new earth and that physical and spiritual reality exists in connection with one another. We, uh, when we say the uh, Apostles' Creed, which we say in this service from time to time. Uh, We said it in the early service this morning. But we say, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. We believe that one day, soul and body are going to be united for eternity in a way that is good and pleasing to God. So it's not just about getting rid of all that is fleshly and bodily so that we can be these spiritual souls that can be with God. God cares about both our spirits and our bodies. And he's the one who made us. He's the one who made these bodies with all of their longings and desires and all of that. Now those things got distorted along the way, right? Just like everything in our life has gotten distorted because sin came into the world and even our desires have been disordered. And so what God created and intended for good, for producing connection and love and life is now a distorted desire, In the passage that we read here from Matthew chapter five this morning, here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been teaching, and this is now the second time he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, right? Last week we talked about, Jesus said, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. And then he went on to talk about how anger in our heart it can be the same as murdering someone. And this week he says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. And um, we're not gonna do a show of hands here today, but I think we can all agree adultery is not a good thing, right? right? Made it into the top 10. Um, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But Jesus takes it from this outward behavior and action of actually committing adultery with another person. Um, And he moves it, you shouldn't be surprised at this point in the sermon series, he moves it to an issue of our hearts, right? Because this is what Jesus is driving at all through this Sermon on the Mount. It's not just about our outward behaviors and actions. God cares about what's in our hearts and he wants to do something about the sin that's worked its way into our hearts. He wants to redeem us. He wants to free us and save us from those things. So Jesus pushes it even further than Moses did. Moses said, you shall not commit adultery. Well, God said, through Moses, and now God's saying through Jesus, but I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully 
That doesn't just have to be a woman. That could be a man. He was talking to a bunch of men, but whoever looks at another person with lust in their heart with, or lustfully, they've already committed adultery in their hearts. Right, because lust doesn't necessarily need to, need to be acted upon to be a disordered desire. It already shows us what is in our heart. Lust is adultery of the heart. As Rebecca DeYoung says in her book, Glittering Vices, which if you're tired of hearing about that book, uh, sorry, but got a, one more week next week, and it's been a shaping book for me in this series, uh, Glittering Vices. You might not be ready to read more about the seven deadly sins yet, but if you ever want to, I recommend that one. Anyway, Rebecca DeYoung says, echoing Jesus here, lust is a problem with your heart above your belt before it is a problem with the heat below it. You get it? Lust is a problem with your heart above your belt before it is a problem with the heat below it. That's what Jesus is saying here. It starts in your heart. It, it, it grows there. Those seeds of lust are what uh, bring themselves to fruition and result in sins. So what is, and Jesus goes on here. He says, you know, if your right eye causes you to sin, if your strong hand, your right hand causes you to sin, it's better to cut those things off. Cut off your hand. Pluck out your eye. It's better to enter heaven without one of those parts of your body than it is to go into hell intact and whole. And now I don't think Jesus really wants us to go and pluck out our eye the next time we look at a person with lust in our heart. But I think he's painting a pretty clear picture about how seriously he takes these issues of our hearts. He's painting a pretty clear picture about the ways that uh, these, this sin of lust gets into our hearts comes in through our eyes, it comes in through our hands. What we look at matters, the things we do matter because they come out of our heart but they also go in to our hearts. So if this lust thing is such a big deal for Jesus, what is it? What are we talking about really when we talk about lust. Well, like I mentioned earlier, we're talking about disordered desire. We, we desire, we're naturally, we desire love and connection with other people. And so God created us with a desire for sex, which he intended, he designed for it to lead to love and connection and life. I think too often we think of lust as desiring sex too much. But I think lust really desires too little from sex, right? Because it wants just the, the pleasure, just the satisfaction without the connection, without what it was designed for, without the consequences. 
But sex was designed for more than pleasure. It was designed for love. It was designed for life. And so lust isn't just about desiring sex. That's a natural desire that God put in us. Lust is about desiring my sexual pleasure. It's the pursuit of my pleasure. And and when we allow that pursuit to lead us, we turn people into objects that are there to achieve my pleasure rather than the pleasure of sex helping to achieve the love and connection that God intended between a man and a woman. You see, we've misplaced our sexuality by making it the goal to be reached, the end to be reached, the key to our fulfillment and flourishing, right? That's what our culture says. And so people become a means to helping us achieve our sexual fulfillment. But in God's design, sex is a means to solidify and grow the connection of that relationship formed between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. It's a means to an end, not an end to be reached. And so lust expresses itself as any pursuit of sex or sexual pleasure outside of God's design. Anything outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. And so in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is talking with Pharisees again about marriage and sex and those things. And in, uh, they ask him about divorce We're not going to get into that today. But his answer here in verse 4 applies just as much to these issues of lust and adultery. He says, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female, right? That's Genesis chapter 1. And he said, for this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his flesh and the two will become one flesh. He'll be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. That's Genesis 2. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. This is what Jesus believed about marriage. And starting in Genesis chapter one and two, right at the very beginning, all through scripture, we see this picture of marriage as an image of God's relationship with us, his people, right? And so marriage matters a lot to God. And so we see it there at the beginning of Genesis, at the beginning of Jesus's ministry in the gospel of John, he blesses a wedding feast at the end of Revelation, we'll be united uh, with Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Marriage matters to God. And all through the Old Testament, um, adultery is used as a picture of the idolatry that the people of Israel were entering into with the, the gods of the nations around them, with the false idols that they were worshiping instead of worshiping the God of Israel. And so the whole book of Hosea 
is a picture of God speaking through the prophet, telling him to go take uh, a wife who was a prostitute, having children with her as his wife, and, and then her being unfaithful, and him going after her, because that's a picture of the God that we serve, even when we are unfaithful to the covenant that he's called us into, he remains faithful. And so marriage is the picture of the relationship that God invites us into. And so anything outside of a marriage between a man and a woman, that's outside of God's design for sex. And that includes promiscuity, which depending on which generation you belong to, that could be called uh, sleeping around, could be called casual sex, could be called hooking up. However you define it, it's having sex before you enter into that covenant of marriage with someone. It's outside of God's design. It looks like adultery, which we've already spent time looking at, but it's that's sleeping with anyone who's not that man or woman that you are married to. Lust expresses itself in pornography. Some staggering statistics out there about pornography use. More than 80% of teenagers between the ages of 15 and 17 have had multiple exposures to hardcore pornography through the internet. 55% of married men and 25% of married women in the church confess that they have viewed pornography at least once a month. And that pornography use increases infidelity rates by more than 300%. Because it starts in the heart, right? Before it's ever lived out in action. So lust expresses itself in a variety of ways, depending on, on the stage of life we're at depending on the relationships we're involved in, but anything that falls outside of God's design for marriage and sex within marriage, it's lust. It's lust. The Apostle Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses uh, 12 to 20, let me know if this sounds familiar. I have the right to do anything. You'll see that's in quotation marks, right? This isn't Paul saying that. He's quoting culture. Sounds like our culture today, doesn't it? I've got the right to do anything. I've got the right to do whatever I want. I've got the right to do whatever feels good for me. Paul says, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything but I will not be mastered by anything. That's what Paul's saying. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Right, there's that biblical view of the body. It's good, it's part of what God 
wants for us. Do you not know, verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. He's pointing back to Jesus. He's pointing back to Genesis. This is the way God made sex. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sin a sin commits or a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies, your physical bodies, are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Paul's saying sex is designed to bind us to another person. But our bodies are made for God. We belong to Jesus. But sex binds us with another person, whether that person's our spouse or not. Our bodies are meant to be the inhabitants of the Holy Spirit. And so the things we do in our body affect the Holy Spirit. We belong to Jesus. His spirit lives in us, in our bodies. And so we're called to honor God with his body, with our bodies, because he's paid a great price to redeem us. Similarly, in in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 to 8, Paul's writing again. He's talking about sexual immorality. This this was a huge problem for the early church. It's still a huge problem. We haven't figured it out. We haven't gotten rid of it from the world. We've got to learn how to live as the church within the world. He said, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we've instructed you how to live in order to please God as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. And we as good Methodists, good Wesleyans say, yes, we're called to sanctification, we're called to holy living. And then without even taking a breath, Paul says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lusts like the pagans who do not know God, and, and that in this matter no one should, take, should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. Clearly, they weren't getting it yet. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. That Holy Spirit who resides within us. God wants to make us holy. And holy his. 
And that includes every area of our lives, including our sexuality, every area of our life under the lordship of Jesus. And we've talked a lot about scripture here this morning and it sounds all good and churchy. But what can we actually do about the lust that's in our hearts? The reality is on our own, nothing. That's the problem with sin, right? That's the problem with all these seven deadly sins. They're the sins that are in us and we can't do anything to fix them. That's why we need a savior. Jesus is ready and willing to forgive us when we confess our sins. When we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we need to confess and we need Jesus to do the forgiving and the cleansing. But I do think there are a couple other things we need to do as well to cooperate with the sanctifying work that God wants to do in us, that that sanctification that Paul talked about in 1 Thessalonians. The first thing I think we need to do is to rediscover what true friendship looks like. You see, in our overly sexualized world, we've lost sight of what it means to connect with people in non-sexual ways. And so we need to learn what it means to pursue love and connection in appropriate ways, in healthy ways. We can do that by developing real, intimate friendships with people, the people we share with, people who love us unconditionally. You see, intimate doesn't have to be a synonym for sexual. Although sex is always going to be intimate, despite what our culture would like to say. But we need to develop these kind of friendships where we can share and be known and we can be connected to other people even if we're not having sex with them. The second thing we need to do, and this is especially true when we find ourselves struggling with our sexuality or struggling with lust, and notice that I said when and not if. But when we're struggling with our sexuality, when we're struggling with lust, we need even more than just good friendship. We also need some accountability. We need some small group accountability, a group where things like this can be brought out into the light because lust and all of these, they feed on shame. And shame seeks to isolate us. Shame makes us feel like we're alone and we can't share and no one else understands. And so we need to find two or three other people that we're going to choose to be completely honest with. People who can hold us accountable without condemning us. People who can look us in the eye and say, in the name of Jesus, you are forgiven. Now go and sin no more. Remember that phrase? Remember that story from John chapter eight when the Pharisees are trying to trick Jesus again and they bring this woman before him who was caught in the act of adultery. She was caught 
And they bring her to Jesus, say, what are we going to do about it? And they start to pick up stones because the Old Testament law said she deserved to be stoned. And honestly, so did the man who was with her. But the story doesn't talk about him. These Pharisees look at Jesus. The question in their hearts, what are you going to do about this? How are you going to handle this? So Jesus kneels down and he writes something in the dirt. I'd love to know what he wrote. That's on my list to ask him someday. What'd you write? And then he said this. He said, all right, guys. The one of you that's without sin yourself, go ahead and throw the first stone. I can imagine there is an incredibly heavy silence in that circle, in that moment. And John tells us that one by one, beginning with the oldest among them, they began to slip off and disappear. Jesus was left there with the woman still standing there. And in verse 10, it says, Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Or some translations say, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Or maybe like me, you're more used to hearing it now. Go and sin no more. You see, Jesus isn't being light on sin. He's not just dismissing it or excusing it, saying it doesn't matter. But this is what grace and forgiveness looks like. Jesus is ready and willing to forgive this woman. And friends, he's ready and willing to forgive us. But it's not enough just to receive forgiveness over and over and over and over again. He calls us to live a different kind of life than we were living before we received that forgiveness. To live within the design that God has for humanity. To live within God's desire for human flourishing. He says, go and sin no more. And that's only possible because of Jesus. It's only possible by the Holy Spirit living within us. Jesus, who was 100% human, he knew what it was to be tempted and not choose the sin. Jesus, who was 100% human, lived his whole life in celibacy. And Jesus shows us that, that contrary to what the world today says, that he shows us that contrary to what the world says, abstaining from sex doesn't make us less human. 
You see, Jesus wants to give us his character. He wants to give us his nature, his righteousness. He was raised to new life so that we could live a new life in him. Friends, even though God wants us to be holy, as Thessalonians said, it's God's will that we are sanctified. God doesn't undo our choices. He gave us a free will to make those choices. And the consequences of those choices don't always get taken away even when we're forgiven. One of the reasons Jesus is so clear, I think, about sex is because sex can often bring such life-altering consequences. But friends, he's ready and he's willing to forgive. He's ready and willing to heal whatever kind of sexual brokenness is in our lives. He wants to come and meet with us, to forgive us, to heal us, so he can send us out to live the life that he designed and desired for us to live, to send us out so we can go and sin 